This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams and you're listening to the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is the CEO of Swiss Watch Expo, Mr. Eugene Tutinkov. Hey Eugene. Hey Ariel, how's it going? Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so you said uh, just before we started recording, this is your first ever podcast, being on a podcast, and that you were nervous and that you didn't talk to anyone for a week and a half. Yeah, I went on voice rest. I had a roommate in college that was constantly auditioning for Broadway musicals, and he would go on voice rest for two, three days at a time. Of course, as a, as a good roommate, I would try to break him out of voice rest by asking him what he ate. You know what he thought about this girl that we met, or you know what the weather was like. But he was he was pretty strong. He'd never break. So uh, I I know what it's like to prepare your voice for something important. So I had been a voice rest for I think thirty minutes. It's not the same three days he used to go on, but you know I gave it enough. <laughs> well, it's glad that you're you, you know you're taking it seriously. And I think the thing that I want to ask you is I've been doing podcasting in the watch space since 2010. I believe I was the first person to ever do a watch podcast. The show was called Our Time back then. I did it with John Biggs. They took a break. I've been doing it again. Um, but for you on the outside, watch podcasting has become a bit of a thing. It's definitely a marketing tool now. Um, there's an ecosystem of shows and things like that. From your perspective as someone who is a retailer, what is up with watch podcasts? What do you see as being the value in the future? I'm just, I'm just curious your thoughts from your perspective. I think it's a combination of, uh, you know, people use it as a tool to be entertained, just like any other media. And, you know, they want to hear either about watches, they want to hear about people, or they want to hear about the story of a business. And hopefully this podcast has a little bit of all three. So, you know, I don't know how you view it, but it, to me, it's it, it should be a light form of entertainment that somebody can enjoy, relax to, and come away with uh, maybe a little bit of new information they didn't have before. Well, what I think is interesting is that the watch industry has followed a trajectory not too dissimilar from cars, which, as you know, the crossover between car consumers and watch consumers is, is, is quite heavy in the enthusiast space. But what I've always said is so important about the world's car industry is that it has a thriving enthusiast media, media ecosystem. I'm talking about the, the world of, you know, used to be magazines, websites, all these things. They're specifically about car appreciation. And I've tried to explain to a lot of marketing people that without that ecosystem of media, you don't have an enthusiast community. You don't have a market for a lot of the enthusiast vehicles and things like that. And similar to watches, while there would be a market for watches without enthusiast media, people would be buying a very small number of brands and you wouldn't have nearly the breadth of, 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 of options out there because there wouldn't be a way of reaching these people. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I, I completely agree. And, you know, it's, you know, the, the enthusiast, they, this is their primary form of learning about the industry, either trade magazines or podcasts. And they're, you know, they're, these are the people that every day they go on a blog, they want to read about watches, they want to listen to the podcast, or they want to watch, you know, very detailed, intrinsic uh, YouTube videos that go into, you know, high details on a specific model. And, that's not your average consumer, but that those are the champions of the industry and they're the ones that are always going to be behind it. And, uh, you know, the, the popularity of watches may climb and wane in some 
at some point, uh, hopefully not, but it could, but the enthusiasts, I think, are always going to be there as the champions of the industry. Now, talk a little bit about your own trajectory. So Swiss Watch Expo, um, I don't know too much about notes. Of course, it's a, it's, it's a website. I don't know what the sort of retail presence is. I know that, of course, there is a traditional retail presence. You'll tell me more about that. But talk about your family business, how you got into it, and what it is exactly that you guys do. Sure. So we have a interesting story. We actually came over as refugees from the former USSR in 1989. Uh, it was, it's where we grew up as a modern day Ukraine, actually one of the cities that I guess Putin is, uh, would be first invading if that happens soon. Whether or not that happens, I have no idea. Understood. But, um, we settled in, uh, Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia. You know, I was, uh, I was always, uh, very studious. I graduated top of my class in high school, then got a full scholarship to NYU. And then I went to work on Wall Street. Um, I was a credit derivative trader for about a decade on Wall Street. Uh, through the crisis. In 2009, my parents, well, my mom and stepfather, my stepfather is a trained uh, master watchmaker. He ran a Rolex service center at the time in Atlanta. Uh, they started buying watches together. He'd fix them up, uh, authenticate them, and then they would sell them on eBay. So that was around 2008 and 2009. I was still in New York uh, doing the Wall Street thing. And um, to support the business, I invested one of my bonuses, which I was uh, fortunate to be very overpaid for a 25-year-old at the time in New York, into some inventory. And as the business kind of grew, they eventually opened up a local storefront and a rudimentary website. And you know, I was always very entrepreneurial-minded. So they would call me and they'd tell me like, some guy flew in from Florida to get a watch. They shipped the watch to Texas and, and like, we don't, you know, this is kind of outgrowing us. Can you come help? And in 2016, the summer of 2016, I switched over from finance and corporate to join the family business. It was this very small operation. It was me, my mom, my stepdad and two employees. Um, most of the sales at the time were going through, uh, third party marketplaces such as eBay and so forth and Chrono24. And I joined with the whole goal of building our own name and our own brand and, you know, having most of the sales come directly to us. Um, that first year after launching a new website, a mobile friendly website and figuring out how to do digital advertising, our sales doubled. And then the second year they were up another 50 or 60%. And then it was kind of off to the races from there. What a great story. Thank you, Gene. I want to say to everyone that your story, while of course being original, um, there's a lot of people from your generation that came over from the former USSR, Russia, Ukraine, and, and other places who came to America with watchmaking as a skill. Um, I don't actually know the background of your family, but many people, because watchmaking was still a very valuable skill in, in, in USSR, came here and found a new way of applying that. And rather than, you know, working at a neighborhood watch repair store. It was buying old unwanted watches, fixing them, reselling them, and being sort of a flipper. And would you agree that there was sort of a generation of people that that, that did that, especially going to the Pennsylvania, New York, you know, Detroit area? There was just a lot of people there. There's a lot of people in the industry that with that exact background and they, they love to barter. But, you know, our story is a little bit different. We were never really flippers. And my stepfather, while he was more or less self-taught in the USSR, 
when he came here, he went through all, a lot of Rolex training and then ran a service center in Atlanta for Rolex. So he did have the formal training. So we weren't, while we see a lot of people in the industry with that background, that doesn't really necessarily mirror our, our trajectory. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I didn't mean to suggest that, that everyone's the same. I just think it's important for people who are listening to recognize that when there are these migrations of people, their skills go with them. And watchmaking has always been one of those interesting skills that you could take with you. It's not specific to a city. It's a trade similar to being maybe a plumber or an electrician. People may not have always traditionally seen it as the most elevated skill, but it's it's highly uh, transportable, and there's a lot of entrepreneurialism that could come from it. And there was, you know, a lot of watchmakers uh, there. And here in America, I'm sure they found that there was a deficit, so they had this skill that wasn't really available. And depending on the background and the family, everyone did a little bit something different with it. And I think that's sort of an amazing thing to talk about. There's there's not a lot of discussion. I'm curious, at least historically speaking, about the schools back in Russia, like where they were training, how that compared to the Swiss stuff. I know that's getting off topic a little bit, but but I've always been curious about that generation because they came to the United States and a lot of them just sort of cleaned up shop. There was so much unwanted watches and so much market to gain. Um, it was a boom for a lot of people, including your family. I completely agree. And, um, uh, you know, it wasn't considered an elevated skill back then, but right now it's, it's you know, it's... Uh, it's almost like being a surgeon and, you know, I have a team of eight watchmakers now full time on staff, but hiring these guys, I had to, I called, called about a hundred people from all over the country, flew wow. in probably 40 or 50 to hire seven. So it's seven plus my stepfather. Yeah. Right it's hard. Now. Uh, yeah. To, to hire a good one's really hard. And I think the ones that, what you touched on, the ones that immigrated and learned that skill in another country, like the former USSR, they seem to be a little bit more agile, quicker, and more creative in how they operate. Again, that's I'm the, not that's a the Russian problem-solving spirit. Exactly, that's what it is. And I'm not a watchmaker, but you could tell that they're, you know, the other guys might be really good, but they're very methodical and by the book. Where the ones that were they came out of these other countries, they seem to be, hey, I can I actually know what's wrong with this watch without you know, going through the other 15 steps that I might need to go through. And I'll just, and I'll just tackle that. Well, that's always been part of that culture is. And again, I've, I've traveled to Russia. I, I have that background myself, basically talking about my, you know, my own ancestors. But the idea is that part of their culture was look that we can do the same thing with less. There was like a certain sense of cultural pride and showing to other cultures, we can more or less replicate what you're doing in a faster, easier, efficient way. And, you know, the Swiss are the total opposite. The Swiss are like, look how much freaking time and money we can <laughs> sink into a mundane thing. And, yeah. you know, a, you know, a, a couple, <laughs> I guess in some instances, you know, not too far away, country away, they're like, um, yeah, but you know what, look what we can do the same thing in like one, you know, like one tenth of the time for one tenth of the cost, you know, and it's sort of like a game that they play with one another. I completely agree. It's, it's it's you hit the nail on the head, and you know we we pride ourselves for doing all our work in house. Um, you know everything's done to manufacturer standards, but I think we're doing it three times quicker than anywhere else. So, what compelled you to leave this world of finance that I know is hectic, and a lot of people like to get out of it? But it, you can make a lot of money. 
And watches is still, you know, a risky business. It takes a lot of work. You told me about all the cold calling you did. I'm sure that's just one of many stories of labor-intensive things you need to do. Um, what is the the appeal? Is it watches? Is it maybe the family business? Uh, tell me about the draw for you. It was a combination of everything. Um, you know, Je- Jeff Bezos was always an inspiration of mine, and he was a he was a big hedge fund guy in New York before he left to sell books online. Um, I'm actually currently reading a book about him. It's called Invent and Wonder. It's a, a bunch of essays and shareholder letters he wrote through the 90s. Um, but basically he talks about, you know, he him leaving finance and he decided to sell books online because they're they're small, they're easy to ship, and there's a lot of variety. And I'll be like, well, he clearly didn't know about the pre-owned watch market because that that is probably everything the pre-owned watch market is, plus it's a high, high dollar item. So for me, watches is the perfect business to build an e-commerce business on um you know cars are a high value item and they're going online but to store ship and maintain cars is much more complicated plus there's the natural depreciation depreciation of cars which uh, watches really don't have because they're built to last longer than we are um so for me it was it was a really exciting thing because i could see so so as a commodity watches are exciting to you as a commodity and also as something you could build an e-commerce business off of because to do, you know, 50, 100 or 500,000 in sales in a day, you could do that with a small team in a small location where there's not a lot of products that you could do that with. Now, you you clearly are a good analyst. So I want you to help me answer these, these two questions that I struggle with because I don't know. Um, I don't know how much you know about my work over the years. Obviously, I, I know you're familiar with my stuff, but I do a lot of industry analysis, and I have to do mm-hmm. so from a perspective of having limited data because there's not a lot of data thrown out there. So I have to make a lot of educated guesses and and you know and, and try to find as much evidence as I can to support my hypotheses. For watches online, I see two issues, and I'd like again, I'd like your sort of thoughts on here. One issue is the challenge in getting inventory, meaning the cost of acquisition for a good product can be so high that reselling it for a profit um, can be challenging. And of course, this is an evolving issue, but that's one thing that I anticipate. Second is related phenomenon, which is the oversaturation point. Um, I've been doing this since 2007, and at the time, internet was still a very, very dirty word. Now you have an enormous amount of uh, commercial interest in selling watches online, whether it's a brand direct to consumers or it's a third-party seller um, you know, like yourself that has multiple brands or whatever it is. Um, a lot of companies like this are coming coming online now. Uh, a little bit later than I anticipated. I thought this would be earlier, uh, meaning a few years back, but that's a different story. So oversaturation and and the ex- cost of, of inventory acquisition seem to be two major issues for me. How do you analyze those issues and how do you justify that those are overcomable issues for you? So we're, we're not seeing it, but the way... You know, I think about it, and I think McKinsey came out with this report, I think, six months ago, where um, it's an $18 billion industry in pre-owned watches, and they expect it to be $25 billion by 2025, or in the year 2025, which is tremendous growth. And, you know, I think we're in the top three, probably, in the country for pre-owned watches, So, and we're obviously not doing a billion dollars a year. So it's extremely fragmented industry. And I think there will continue to be consolidation away from smaller players to the handful of larger players. Um, you know, we we have the expertise to authenticate service, repair the watches. We have, you know, 2,500 watches in inventory. We can micromanage 
the quality of that inventory for a pre-owned product, it's very important to make sure the quality is consistent. Um, A lot of smaller players can do that. So I think more of the business is going to keep migrating to the handful or so um, global players, of which I I expect us to be one of them, and away from some of the smaller guys. Also, the fakes are getting better and better out of China and wherever else they're making them. And while that makes our job harder, it also makes our business more valuable because people are going to be more hesitant to buy from smaller operations that don't have the kind of team and ability to authenticate every watch that we do. Thank you very much for that. That's interesting. So you see consolidation as being a natural um, phenomenon that's going to occur. And, and you know, I, I see consolidation happening in multiple instances. It can, be, it can mean multiple things. But in this instance, what you're saying is that there's going to be a little bit less of a wild west, which means it's going to be a little bit more attractive to investors wanting more stable returns and a little bit uh, more crowded because it used to be just sort of the scrappy person was like, hey, no one's doing anything here. So as more money comes into a space because it's more developed, some of the smaller players will naturally be pushed out because they can't compete or, or just sort of bought up. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly what I think will happen. It'll be, you know, the, at the end of the day, um, if we have the widest selection of inventory for pre-owned, we have competitive pricing. We don't have to have the best pricing. Um, we have really good sales team. We have really good policies. We can educate the consumer. You know, that consumer, if we win them, when they start their search to buy or sell a watch in the future, they're going to start on our website. They're not going to start on Google. They're not going to start elsewhere because they already know we have the selection and the quality is going to be consistent and the price is going to be fair. So a lot of retailers today in your space talk a lot about like what you said. We've invested in these things. Um, our salespeople and customer service staff are well-trained and great. There's a lot of emphasis on sort of the special sauce that we bring to a transaction that could be replicated elsewhere. Um, do you believe that that's really where the fight is going to be in in service, or is it going to be about also price availability? And where does marketing come in? Because I know that one of the things that isn't going on right now a lot, and it's starting, is heavy marketing campaigns. You know, I think about uh, department stores in a city like Los Angeles growing up, and there'd be big competition from the Robinsons May and the Macy's and the Bloomingdales mm-hmm. and Nordstroms, and they all be trying to vie for your attention because you couldn't shop at all of them at the same time. Um, when is something like that going to start in the space? I know I'm asking a bunch of different questions here, but um, I, I love your insight. Yeah, sure. I, th- I, I, I think it, all those things have to work together to create one of the winners in the space. So you have to have a wide selection. I think we have probably more inventory unit-wise online than any other person in the country, uh, any other company in the country. Uh, you know, we typically carry between 2,500 and 3,000 uh, pieces of inventory. A lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, you know, we're buying and selling hundreds a week. Uh, so it's a, it's quite an operation. Um, but then you need to, it's not just, you know, for pre-owned, like I said, it has to, you have to guarantee the authenticity. So you have to have that expertise, but you also have to guarantee that the quality is going to be consistent. So you're, we're not selling things with stretch bracelets or, you know, nicks on the bezel or anything like that. Um, and we have a reputation that, you know, if you order a watch uh, before 4 p.m., it gets shipped out the same day. So we have a client in California. He's like, I need to wear this watch tomorrow. We can guarantee to ship it that day. And we could do that on 2,500 watches. 
no one really can guarantee that. And then you have to have the marketing and the PR and the brand building to, you know, gain the trust of the consumer because while consumers are becoming more and more comfortable spending large sums online, which is great because if we did this business 20 years ago, it wouldn't really work. Um, but now it does because the cons- consumers are comfortable going online and, you know, putting down their credit card and something for ten, twenty thousand dollars um, But still, it takes time to build that reputation, build that trust uh, that they know that there's not, you know, nothing's going to go wrong with this transaction. And it took us years to build that kind of reputation. That's all very interesting. Um, uh, so many things to, to ask you. One of the things I want to ask you is about sort of the tolerance for the long term. And what I mean by that is when you're buying product, you, know, you have to take money, and you have to buy watches, and then you have to assume that I can sell it for a higher amount, right? Like in your, someone in yeah. your position would never say, well, I'm going to buy this watch for 5000 I think I can sell it for 4000 That yeah. That goes against yeah. making money. <laughs> yes. So there are some watches that you feel have an immediate market and you can sell it right away. But because there's a known immediate market, you probably have to pay a premium to get it. Alternatively, there's cool watches that you know are cool because you're a watch person, but that don't necessarily have current high market demand. So you can buy it for a low price, but you know that there isn't someone out there willing to buy it immediately. So how do you mix these things up when you when you purchase watches, meaning the ones that you think you can sell right away versus the ones that you probably have to sit on for a while, but you're confident it's a cool watch? It's, it, it's, a, it's a great question. It's actually something, you know, I look at the data for us internally. I struggle with this all the time because the one side of me, the you know, the capitalist wants to say, well, if I keep buying these watches and they sell after two, three weeks at a small margin, and you know, I actually make more money versus buying these other watches that, you know, take me three, four months to sell, uh, but maybe at a slightly higher margin. And then I have to balance all that with the fact that, like I mentioned, there's a whole production cycle. I have, have, you know, the watchmaking department, I have five full-time photographers just photographing the inventory on staff. Uh, So they have a capacity as well. So it's not like I I can just buy unlimited watches and get them up on the site. Um, So there's constraints. But the real answer is, and the long-term answer is, you don't want to just carry the hottest watches. Um, You want to carry those interesting, unique watches, uh, which is basically... I guess the tail of the distribution of interest of people buying watches. So most people are not well buying, but there's, there'll be some people that buy them. And the, the reason you do that is, is when you have that widest selection and you're, you know, you're hitting those tails that will keep people coming back to you and starting their searches from you, knowing that you have the variety that other people don't have, even though in the short term, your numbers might not be as good as if you just concentrated on what's hot. Very, very interesting. I, I know that a lot of people in your position uh, seem to have a grail, and that grail is a deep relationship with the consumer, meaning you become, for lack of a better term, their watch buddy. They call you to talk about watches. Sometimes it's a little bit of therapy or listening to their day, but, the end, but, the, but at the end of it, you're selling them new product on a regular basis, and that, and that it's actually, and again, I'm, I'm just speaking from hearing other people in your position discuss this, but it seems to be this very valuable relationship that lasts a long time versus someone who just sort of goes to the website again and again and again, and you never know their name and never talk to them. Talk about how that really personal relationship as more like a client than a customer, um, how that fits into your whole model and how important is something like that these days? Uh, 
it's funny. I had this conversation with um, a local friend who's a super successful billionaire recently, and we were just talking about my business. And he's like, well, how do you get more people to go on your site um, instead of contacting you to just buy the watch? And I told him, I'm like, I actually don't want that. I actually want them to contact us where most e-commerce companies don't want that because I want them to have the experience working with our sales team. Um, more than half the clients that shop with us do call in or email in and have a contact with our sales team. Um, and I'm by no means trying to decrease that percentage. Uh, we're, we're one of the few people in the industry. We don't pay our sales team any commission. Um, they're essentially a group of watch nerds that just want to educate our clients, talk to them about watches. Uh, we tell them, we always talk to them about inspiring our, our customers passion for the, for horology. Uh, so they're really there to educate and delight our customers and not necessarily to just close a transaction. They don't get any benefit for upselling anyone by any means. So it's exactly what, what you're saying. We want clients to call in and be comfortable knowing that they could just have a chat and learn about um, anything we have in our inventory or anything they're thinking about and get really good knowledge and you know get inspired to make their next purchase in the future. So that's an entirely different business uh, that we're talking about. You know, one side of the business is, of course, getting these watches and selling them. The other one is this complex sales relationship. You know, you probably have to have some type of Salesforce system going on to remember all the details of these people, their birthdays, names of kids, last watches they bought and stuff like that. Um, This is, you know, this seems to be a very interesting area that at least could theoretically be invested in to have a very sophisticated backend so that you could have these people. Because I agree, the commission-based system does not always work. Sometimes just giving them a decent salary ends up making you a whole lot more money in the long run. Which is exactly the business decision that we took, and, and we love it. It allows everyone to work more as a team. Uh, no one's picking, you know, fighting for who picks up the phone. Um, and as far as, you know, the, the data and the birthdays, and that's important, but having employees that are with you for many years and having the client call in knowing the other person, the person on the other line, they could ask for John or Brad or Michael and that person will be there, the same person they shopped with five years ago. I think that gives them a lot of comfort. So let's talk a little bit about developing a website. You said that when you joined the family business, you had to develop a website that you were using channels like eBay, which is still very popular and I'm sure you still use to find customers. But that having a website was important to you. And I have sort of a, a longer message I want to discuss about this, about the importance of watch retailers branding themselves. But talk a little bit about developing a website. Was that something hard? Is that fun? Um, you know, what, what was sort of the evolution on that? Because, uh, and again, a little context, I think most watch brands have it wrong. I think the sort of websites seem to be uh, shoppable catalogs as opposed to storytelling vehicles that, that are really good at branding. Um, so I have my own opinions on it, but I'll stop talking. I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, I, I you know, so it was 2016 where we decided to redevelop the website. The prior one was not really mobile friendly. It was essentially a desktop site that was loading on a phone. First thing we focused on, we wanted to have extremely clear product photography. We spent a lot of time in-house photographing every watch individually. Uh, from all different angles, and we wanted the photographs to be very large, very clear, no matter what device you're on. A lot of the things that we wanted, we couldn't find in an out-of-the-box solution like a Shopify. So we actually hired a team in Argentina and later some guys from some other countries, and we built it completely from scratch. 
Uh, we designed every look and feel, every menu on the site. We, you know, I would stay up nights and weekends testing things, you know, putting orders in. So, you know, we don't, at that point, we're a four or five person operation. We didn't have the team that you would imagine an e-commerce business to have, but it really allowed us to understand what's working, what's not working. And I think in the end, it kind of made us better operators by micromanaging all these different processes, including building the website. Um, but yes, I agree. So the, the I think the website should have a lot of storytelling, but it's it's um, it has to be in a separate section because consumers, if you give them too much stories as they're shopping, they forget that they're shopping and then they leave and then they you know they never actually transact. So you, you, there has to be a balance. All the information they need should be at their fingertips, but in a way that does not distract them from their shopping journey if that's what they're on. So you're you're really into analyzing the consumer behavior. You always want to be closing, right? You you want them to focus on buying, and you have a distinct interest in identifying their behavior patterns so that you make sure that you can sell them a watch as quickly as possible. Um, and again, this is smart to do, and I wish more people would do this. Um, do you find sometimes though that you get lost in the data? I Meaning, there's so much potential data that that it isn't even possible to really know what to do with it all. Oh yeah, I mean, I was. You know, my first year, I was just obsessive on how the website's performing. And um, I would, we had the software which would record uh, clients anonymously, but clients visiting our site and we could see where they clicked and all this stuff. And I would just sit up for hours watching these videos. I mean, I, if anybody saw me, they probably would have thought I'm crazy, but I was curious. Are there any Looking bugs? for patterns. Where are they going? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was like, um, it was, have you ever seen that movie Pie? I kind of felt like that guy towards the end of oh, it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Just carrying in huge amounts of data, hoping desperately that some deeper yeah. knowledge or insight will be re- revealed as a result. Yeah, but I would literally sit at home watching these videos of people <laughs> shopping on my website. It was, it was really bizarre. I mean, like, probably why I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. But um, <laughs> I know I have, a, uh, I have a child now, and I think all the stuff I did as an entrepreneur before I had a family, it was like, you know, I, it was like basically doing three jobs at once. And now I do like a job and a half at my job, you know, and it's like, wow, I really wish I had nothing else to distract me from nerdy things like staring at data at 2 a.m. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, there's there's so much data, and I think it's so important. And at the end, as you keep growing, uh, the successful organizations not really know how to harness that data. And it's a never it's a it's a never ending process. I, I got to say this, and I, I think this is really important. Um, you have the educated background where you respect data, meaning you know the limitations of data. Uh, you, you you understand it as a tool. It's it's still just a tool. It's not gospel. You know, the way data is collected is way more important than actual numbers are seeing in front of you. And you can see numbers skewed to to tell just about anything. But not everyone is educated like you, Eugene. A lot of people believe numbers that don't mean anything. We know that uh, it's very easy to manipulate someone with statistics that are completely made up. Like we're very susceptible to just made up numbers. Okay. Yep. This is like part mm-hmm. of the human condition. So there's a lot of marketing people. Uh, in your shoes at competitors, like other retailers, or the watch brands, which is mostly what I'm thinking about, who fundamentally don't know what to do with all this new data that's being presented to them. And they're paralyzed. And they have two problems. A, they won't do anything if they don't feel like they have data to support it, which is problematic. And two, they interpret data that they receive wrongly. They don't understand the context. They don't understand the limitations of it. They don't understand estimates and rankings and trends. And they just don't understand you know, what to do with all this stuff and, and what it all means and putting it into context. Uh, 
this isn't going to end anytime soon. I mean, this is a generational problem and it could be up to 20 or 30 years before the new people come in. But do you find uh, that there is an issue out there with people in the marketing industry and everything revolving it that simply have no idea what to do with the context and the ocean of information that's given to them these days? Oh, 100%. I mean, if they looked at our data, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, you had 30 of these watches and all of a sudden they all sold out. So you need to go and just buy as many as you can. I'd be like, well, no, you know, the model got discontinued. <laughs> the price dropped $10,000. So if I go buy more, I'm going to pay an extra $10,000. And at the new price, I might not be selling them as fast, right? So so there's a reason why we sold out of all of our inventory really fast, you know? Um or, you know, it could have been some celebrity wearing it or, you know, so you, you really got to try to look into what drove the data and what are the fundamentals, like you said, and not just take the data blindly. And also, which you kind of mentioned before, I think there's a trade off uh, in business a lot between short term profitability and maximizing things versus doing things that are going to build you as a company for the long term, like having inventory at the tails, which not everybody wants, which sells a little slower, but creates that um, that vision of a selection for the client. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blogged Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch Store. Right now, the Blog to Watch Store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. So let's let's talk about the the fascinating topic of hyper popularity amongst certain Rolex and Patek Philippe and whatever models. Due to the internet's ability to give a sort of winner-take-all situation, meaning popular things end up being mega popular um, because of the way search and, and recommendations work, we have this weird situation where a small number of watches are hyper-popular in the, in, a, in the context of what appears to be mass interest in luxury timepieces, even though it's consolidated around a few models. If you want to do business in this world, <clears throat> meaning you want to buy one of these watches or sell one of these watches, it's a freaking disaster. And there's all these other watches out there that are wonderful, but not that many people want. So what, what can be done about the situation where demand for watches appears to be very, very high, but interest seems to be extremely narrow? What, what can be done with money and effort and strategy to make the, the, you know, the, the B and C brands uh, and their models, uh, it's somewhere near an equal demand zone with this other stuff. Because again, it is within the context of a lot of consumers wanting a luxury watch. They just don't know their options. Uh, thoughts? I think it's, um, I mean, it's hard to get there and I'm not sure it's necessarily the goal to get there. I mean, Rolex is, I think, one of the top consumer brands in the world in general, not just the watches. I think right behind Nike uh, in a survey that I read uh, recently, you know, they've, you know, these companies 
Very trusted. Have a, very, have trusted a rich, very trusted, rich history, billions and billions a year on brand building and marketing. So for an upstart watchmaker to be able to take some market share from them would be difficult. But, you know, some of the things that are happening are going to push consumers naturally to explore smaller watchmakers. When the watch, the, you know, the Daytona, they thought they could get for 20000 now they have to pay 50000 for you know, that's going to push them maybe to look at other um, alternatives. And I think as as a retailer or a podcast producer or writer of a blog, all we can do is try to educate the consumer and provide them the information and be ready to talk to them about anything that they want to talk about and educate them about other brands. And then a lot of it just is going to be just like anything else is going to have to be driven by supply and demand forces. You know, if sports models keep going up 25% a year, there's not going to be many people that can, that can afford them, right? Well, what I see happening a lot is interest being shifted around to a lot of interesting places when you can't fulfill that Rolex desire. People who want the Rolex brand are turned off by it now because they can't get anything and they feel like they're not being treated well. And so there's all this latent interest out there to buy something if only some brand would market, i.e. speak to them. And so that's where I think all of the opportunity comes about. It's not that every single brand has to be on par or take their market share, but there's a lot of demand out there that could be fulfilled if only this consumer were romanced by these uh, other models, brands, whatnot, right? Like I'm just thinking about it as, as, a, as an industry builder. Um, there's money to be made, so to say. It can, but it would be a long process. You know, the the, the beauty of, you know, Patek, Rolex, uh, all the other top brands is they hold their value really well. If we're going into inflation, their prices are going to keep going up. Uh, I think what we so the stability is extremely exciting to you. It's it's an asset, yeah. So people, when they're buying a Daytona, they realize it has real value. Those upstart brands, you know, people are not going to be as comfortable investing large sums of their money into them. So tell tell me this: what is the difference between a retailer that sells watches? as an asset versus a more traditional retailer that sells watches is what I call a celebration item. You know, is there a fundamental difference? Are these the exact same? Because today I see a stratification. I see some people that are still selling celebration items. And now we have a different, uh, an emerging category of retailers that are selling assets. Well, you know, there, there are certain retailers. There's, I think there's even like a fund where you could buy fractional shares in the watch. So you can instead, I'm of, sure. own, I'm instead sure. of owning a Daytona, I saw the marketing like you could own one percent of a Daytona that's in someone's <laughs> vault, which I guess it could make sense if the prices keep going up, but that kind of destroys the joy of. I know you got to wear know, it. What, what, you got to wear it. That's the whole thing. But I think so. We we sell the watches. We don't sell it as an asset. But I think having somebody come in and say, you know, put five percent of their net worth into watches because they like them. And they they love their history, their you know complicated mechanisms, and uh, you know the brands and everything. And they follow them and they support them. They're more li- likely to do that if they know they're going to hold their value. If they thought you know a hell or high water, they need to sell them in a week, and they're only going to get ten cents on the dollar. They're not going to put five percent of their net worth into watches. But if they know that they're going to hold their value, maybe go up from there, and and they enjoy wearing them, then they're more likely to buy more of them. I'm going to say one more topic on this issue and, and we'll move on because I know it's a strange issue and it's 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 fraught with politics these days and stuff like that. But this is the point I want to make. 
a lot of these consumers who are, and I agree, interested in things like value retention, it's, it's on their mind, are more interested in, in, a, in a perception value, meaning they want to believe that their watch is worth a lot or that they could sell it for a fair amount. They don't actually do it. So it's not really a realized value. It's more a perceived value, which actually goes back to the core reason why people buy these, which is an, is an emotional purchase. It's, it's fun and it feels good to wear. But would you agree that a lot of people are are really more interested in the perception of higher worth. They don't actually realize it because few of them ever go on to sell it. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a status thing too. So you, I guess that's a perception of high worth. If you walk into a room with a you know a rare timepiece, uh, only other watch collectors in the room are going to recognize, and it, it's it's expensive. That you know it's a status it's a status symbol. But yeah, most people don't actually sell the watch. But I hate I do hate when people come to me and they ask me what's the best watch you have that's the best investment. I'm like, well, that's not where you should start. You know, you should start with, you know, what are you looking for? And then we could talk to you if we think it's going to hold its value well. But, you know, you shouldn't be buying watches because you think they're going to appreciate. Okay, so on that note, what other things do you hate being asked? (laughs) Um, That's probably the most common one. The other one is if we can add some diamonds to the bezel or do some customizations because we don't do any of that. Everything we sell is original, but, you know, we'll have people like, oh, can you – we love the watch, but now can you ice it out for us? And we're like, well, that's not something that we do. Um, We get that a lot. Okay. uh, That's the most common one. I've got a funny anecdote, though. We had uh, two years ago, um, as COVID was starting, we had – a client from Italy we've never dealt with since like one cryptic email wires us $25,000 for a watch and then our sales team calling him, emailing him, and he's not responding to anything. So they come to me and they're finally like, what do we do? And, you know, I call our lawyer and I thought maybe the guy passed away. It's a, it's a rough time for the world. You know, the money's ours. The watch is not ours. It's off, off the site, not on sale anymore. And all of a sudden, three weeks later, as we're trying to figure out how to find his next of kin to get him this watch or whoever owns his estate, he surfaces and he's like, oh, ship the watch here in Italy. We're like, dude, where have you been? We thought like you died. We were all worried about you. And he's like, no, I read your reviews. I saw your videos on YouTube and I saw like I saw videos of your actual store in Atlanta and you guys were good for it. So I didn't worry about it. I'm like, well, I guess we did something with our reputation building that, you know, he would wire the money and not even bother responding to anything. So this industry, um, maybe less today than in the past, but has a little bit of a problem with people in your position being asked to hold on to a whole lot of money for a while. Is this still an issue or is this a little bit more a thing of the past of the uh, strange position that some of your clients put you in? No, we have not had to deal with that lately. They, if anything, they, there are, if we, we promise overnight shipping and for some reason FedEx had a delay, they think we are in charge of FedEx and we can like make the <laughs> trucks try faster. So we're getting the opposite problem. It's funny how fast people want their watches. Like they're, you know, people buy things online all the time. I get they want it fast, but some people, when they buy a watch, like the fact that there's immediate shipping is such a deal maker for them. Like waiting a few extra days, but like they have to have it. Any funny stories about people just like pushing you to go the extra mile to make sure they get it a few hours early? I mean, where they're constantly calling us. I, I, I swear, I think some of these people um, want the tracking number more than they actually want the watch. The way they're calling for the for the tracking number every fifteen minutes after placing an order, um, it, it's really interesting. Um, but we get we get other anecdotes. Like we had. Um, like a local client, he's like, I'm looking for a Rolex Amer, calls in, and the salesperson's like, come in, we got we got 45 of them. 
and he and the guy just yells at him. He's like, you know, screw you, don't lie to me, don't play games with me, and hangs up the phone. He thought like we were joking because we have forty five submitters. So he, thought, <laughs> he was like, he thought, he thought we were playing a prank on him, which I and the salesperson told me this. Does, where was where is your funny. store for people that don't know? Where is your store? Talk about the physical location itself. It's in Buckhead, Atlanta. It's a two-story building, 7,000 square feet. We have a physical showroom. We're by appointment only right now. We have the whole watchmaking atelier in the back. It's a really cool um, modern slash industrial type design. And you could, when you when you're in the showroom, you could see the watchmakers in the back working on the watches through a, through a basically a glass wall. So it's kind of like when you walk into a modern restaurant and you could see the chef cooking your food in the back, same thing. Uh, that's the experience you get with that's us. That's fun. That's fun. And it's it's great. You walk into a place and you see 2,500 watches and showcases. I don't think there's a single place in the country that has that. So what, what about the Atlanta market was attractive to your family? Was it for watches? And talk about that market right now. I actually have still uh, not been to Atlanta, unfortunately. I really want to go. It seems like an, an amazing city. Um, but I find it fascinating that every American city has a very distinct watch retailer culture, um, a, a different set of consumers. I mean, that's one of the biggest problems that the Europeans have is they can't seem to wrap their minds around the fact that the U.S. is really a number of different markets in sort of one big federated space. Now, I'd love to hear you know your opinions on the Atlanta market. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'd love for you to come down and hang out and grab some dinner and show you the operation in person. So cool. when you're ready, please let me know. The Atlanta market, so it, it's a... Uh, it's an entertainment and a real estate town. Uh, we get a lot of real estate folks. So a lot of people made money in the city on commercial real estate. So we have a lot of customers that are either agents or developers or, you know, own a lot of real estate in the city. So that's very common. Um, you know, since we don't sell any of the iced out watches or anything like that, we don't really get the hip hop crowd and arts and entertainment crowd that's in Atlanta as much. Uh, there's a, there's another business nearby that, hits them up because they do the iced out and the jewelry and they do a good job with them. Um, but it's a, it, it's a booming city. You know, there's been a huge migration from the Northeast cities down to South, whether it's Georgia or Florida or Texas. And we're, we're seeing that we just, we just had Google sign a huge office lease. Um, I think Facebook is moving a lot of employees here too. So we're, it's really, um, it's a very diverse city and, uh, uh the population is really growing. That's fantastic. And your your space itself, do you have events there normally? I mean, you said it's by appointment only right now, which I understand. But I'm wondering how important it is to, de- to develop a community and communities have to have spaces to go. So I've always really liked the model that some cities are doing in certain places. Maybe Atlanta has as well, where people come to hang out. You know, you have regular meetups um, and it's more like a hangout space versus like the traditional what I call you know jewelry store environment. So the design of the space is exactly that. It's almost like an industrial lounge atmosphere. Um, my mother and a designer I found helped. They worked together in the design. And he, he did mostly work on restaurants in Atlanta. He wasn't a retail guy. So it has a really unique atmosphere. As far as events, it's kind of like when you go on a website and you could add something on a wish list. It's on my wish list. We just haven't been able to do it. We're, I feel like we're perpetually understaffed. We grew 60% last year. January was up over 100% year over year. Um, you know, the year before last, we grew 40%. So when we're growing this fast as an operation, we're kind of having trouble keeping up with personnel 
uh, to be able to accommodate these kind of events. No, I, I, I completely understand. You know, uh, all the different things that watch retailers need to do today, especially with the added component of marketing, means that they have to be at least double the size of what the sort of mom and pop jewelry store used to be. The, you know, and, and I and I love to talk about this because it's so important to discuss how the changing economics um, has a big effect on on what the businesses uh, are like. For example, a watch brand that has to make its own movements has to have a factory, which means it has to have a lot more costs. So um, these these go into so how how companies are formed and who runs them. So in the watch space, you have to now have, like you said, a customer service team, website. Uh, marketing materials, content creation, in addition to actually buying watches, uh, having to service them, insurance, protecting them, transporting them, logistics. Uh, what, what else am I missing? I've got five people just photographing the inventory. Wow, five, five and, people. And Yeah, cleaning the photos. Because each watch has to be photographed under special light, all different angles. Each photo has to be. Well, I'm, you know me. I've been shooting watches for 15 years. Yeah, exactly. So you know, you know this, and it, it's a whole operation just to photograph the watches and then it, list them on the website. I mean, like right now, actually, sometimes what I do in the background is I'll be in Lightroom, editing images because yeah, people don't recognize all the time. There's no picture of a watch which is good right out of the camera. Pretty much everything needs editing of some type, and if you're putting it online. You have to pick out pieces of dust, which can occur, fix lighting and color issues, cut out backgrounds. Like this is all very, very time intensive. Exactly. And it took a while for us to learn it. So for instance, the shadow on the picture, somebody's going to look at it online and assume that's dirt or scratch. So you need to make things in a certain light and clean certain shadows and dust out to make sure it actually reflects what the watch looks like. It, it used to be that people would just steal our pictures. I used to go on all the time and on even in stores. Like our photography would be there because it's such a pain in the ass. They would just steal it. I remember I was in a store in London, authorized dealer, the whole shebang, literally <laughs> screens in the store with my wrist. That's crazy. And, <laughs> yeah. And then online, of course, you can imagine all the stores that would steal our images and things like that because you can't, it's, it's, it's technically copyright infringement. A lot of instances to use the, the images supplied by the brand. So you can't do that. And so you have to use your own images and also proves that you have the watch. But you have to, you know, shoot it and do all that stuff. So, you know, having done this the entire time that I have, I've seen every type of shady situation you can imagine. Yeah, we see people steal our, our, our images. We've had our lawyer send cease and desist letters and having, having them taken down. Because we invest so much money into this, so we don't want other people using our photography. We'll, we'll have to do an event in Atlanta. That's, I think, how you can get the data. Uh, we We have a great time in cities all over the world where we invite a blog to watch audience members to come to do an event. We've done it in European cities, Asian cities, different cities in America, of course. I actually have never done one in Atlanta, and I'd love to go out there and invite, I mean, you tell me how many people, I'm sure we could fill the place uh, with watch lovers, you know, to bring a friend, um, check mm. out a bunch of watches. I mean, imagine people being able to play with your inventory, uh, chat with you, just see a bunch of watches, meet some fellow watch lovers. Um, you know, that's really... I think what's so important that I'm trying to educate the industry on is is how to have a good sense of community, how to develop it, how to work with partners, when to do it yourself, when to rely on third party media. Um, you know, it, it's it's an uphill battle, like you said. There's a lot of education to be done. Everybody wants to do it on the cheap, so to say, um, and then they realize, oh wait a minute, you know, 
just like with the photography, it's a whole other investment. I actually have to hire a team or trust a professional organization to help. You know what I mean? I completely agree. And I think, you know, those the kind of community reinforces itself because there's a lot of people that are looking for connection in the world. And, you know, the enthusiasm and and collecting of watches could create that connection between them and other people. So it, it makes their life better. Do you find the what I call the aspirational watch collector as a consumer type interesting? And here's what I mean by this. It used to be that these watch events had just watch collectors. And then this new type of person came in, which is, I don't really know how much I like watches, but I want to look like I like watches so I can appeal to the other people in this room. So it's that's why I call it an aspirational watch collector. They're more interested in looking like a watch collector than actually being <laughs> interested in watches. And I'm sure you've identified this demographic. We see them all the time and they go in and out. And some years they seem like they are a watch collector. And other years you could tell they're, you know, they're, they don't even know what they're buying. And they're just calling and say, what should I buy for X amount of money type of thing? <laughs> and then they, they don't even look at the picture and they just send, <laughs> send over the wire. Um, so we, we definitely see that. Who are the, these people? It's such weird behavior to me. I'm, I'm still mystified by it. I don't get like Like, why do you want to oh. look like a watch collector so much? Who are you trying to like impress? I think it's uh, a lot of it's the social media, Instagram culture. You know, they, if they, a lot of these people, and I find it interesting, they'll, you know, they'll buy, some of them will buy a watch every, you know, every six months or so and then sell them again. I think they're just trying to create the image of having a huge collection. So they will actually invest in doing that for, for some type of social media cred. What, what's to gain? Is it, is it, respect with fellow business colleagues is it um does it show a certain level of you know fitness uh, to, to women like what like what exactly because when i see someone out there who has a nice watch i feel that maybe we have some shared values we could have a conversation it's not guaranteed but outside of friendship and and you know having a nice chat there's nothing really else i i think i'm not like oh, i'm gonna buy from that person so like you know what i'm saying like what are they trying to get socially speaking I don't know. I mean, when they meet their buddies on vacation, wherever they travel to every weekend, they could say, oh, here's my new watch. And it makes them seem like they're, I guess, wealthier if they have a new watch every other week. Oh, so it's a conversation item. They have nothing else to talk yeah, I think about. It's, yeah, I think, I think it's a conversation item yeah, for some of them. Okay, that makes sense. And But you have to be the psychologist because, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but knowing these various personality types gives you a, a big leg up in understanding what to sell to them, right? Of course, if you know they're more likely to come back and sell something sooner, then you definitely want to sell them something that's going to hold its value very fast. So you don't want to sell them a unique piece where if we buy it back, there's you know more of a hit because it's a one-off, complicated piece. Um, so you want to sell them something that's really popular, really trendy. You know they could sell in and out and not not take much of a hit um, if they want to trade in and out of it, or it'll probably go up in, in the near term. But really, it's, you know, anyone that's buying watches from us, we appreciate them for whatever their reasons. I think with social media and um, the pandemic and people spending less money on travel and restaurants, especially this year, I guess it's picking back up. But in the last couple of years, it was less. You know, people are, people are looking for, you know, new ways to spend their discretionary income. And it was, I guess, classic cars, art and watches.
So I want to sort of end this on a topic that I think you'll appreciate because it very much is in defense of, of what you and companies like you do. And that is the fact that what Eugene is talking about is not something that can be replaced by technology, nor can it be incorporated into sort of a large, you know, publicly traded company strategy of running business. There's still so much of a hands-on touch by truly seasoned veterans of watches and sales for any of this to work. What I'm trying to say is that, yes, watch retail is booming, but to be successful at it requires sort of a boutique agency approach rather than sort of a corporate approach um, or anything else you know, that could be solved through an algorithm or something like that. And that means that companies like uh, Swiss Watch Expo will always have an important part to play in the ecosystem of selling watches in America. And a lot of that has to do with just, you know, what it takes to sell a watch. It's a relationship, it's confidence building, um, it's human connection. Um, this is, and, and, I, and people have said this to me a long time ago, and it's been so true, it's the wisest thing anyone said, this is a relationship business. That's what I heard many times when I started out. I haven't heard it in a while, but I'm bringing the term back. This is very much a relationship business. Um, you, you, people don't want to have a relationship with technology. If anything, it's 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 manipulation. You're pretending like it's a relationship with a human when it's not. People want a human relationship, especially when they're buying expensive things and wearing expensive things. Um, so, you know, add your thoughts to that. Whereas you are essentially technology proof and sort of like corporate buyout proof, because what you do will always require a certain touch that is not easy to replicate. Yeah, I completely agree. Don't buy your watch, uh, your next Rolex in the metaverse, buy it in real life. I guarantee you're going to enjoy it a lot more. Our business is very complex with expensive physical products. And if you call into our team, the experience you're going to get from our sales staff and the education you're going to get is not something you're going to get um, from many other retailers in the country. And, you know, building that expertise takes a long time. Like I said, like you've mentioned, it's definitely technology proof. People keep telling me and asking me when am I going to open the shop in the in the metaverse, and I really don't think I need to do that because I think these are physical products and they're meant to be enjoyed in the physical world. So, no NFTs for you? I think NFTs to track the history of a watch uh, through the blockchain, so you could buy a watch and go through. Oh, we're token, on the same page. Don't worry. Token and see. <laughs> Who's owned that watch is gonna is really really cool, and you know initially there's not gonna be that much data, but go forward 100 200 years, and you know these watches are built to last that long. That's gonna be really really neat. Uh, but to have somebody in the virtual world buying a virtual Rolex and walking around with it and spending thousands of dollars in a virtual Rolex, and I'm having a lot of people trying to pitch me on somehow getting involved in this just doesn't really excite me, to be honest. I, I, I feel you. It's so, it's so FOMO and buzzwordy. I mean, look, I, I studied NFTs. I understand the technology and all that. And I agree. There's a lot of future for a lot of logistic things. But to buy these as a digital asset just because it's just it's 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 silly, but we could we could we'll have another conversation about that hopefully in person. Um, before we we end, Eugene, just go ahead and plug website, any other channels. Uh, how can people yeah. find more about you and contact you if necessary? Yeah, best way go on our website, call in our team four zero four eight one four one eight one four, and we'll love to chat with you. Just call us in, ask us any questions about watches that you want. 
Thank you. This has been Eugene uh, Tutankov of SwissWatchExpo.com. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Errol, thanks a lot. I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blog2watch.com. <laughs>